So we're going to hop right into uh, the passage now, into our sermon. So if you get your Bibles open, and the kiddos are already out, so we don't need to dismiss the kiddos, so good. (laughs) We're ahead of schedule here. So we are uh, looking at Luke 15. We'll be focusing on verses 11 through 32. Um, so yeah, let me, let, me, uh, let me just pray and we'll uh, get things rolling here. God, thank you. Thank you for a, a day, uh, Lord, where we can rejoice together with a body. We have a day of the week where we can come together as your people to sing your praises, Lord. And Lord, I, I thank you for the words we did sing, you, O great God of highest heaven, because that's who you are. You are the sovereign king, the mighty one, the majestic one. And Lord, uh, what a privilege it is to come together as your people, where we get to call you not just king, but also father. You're our good shepherd. You're our redeemer. And and Lord, so we thank you. We come with hearts full of thankfulness and praise right now. And Lord, as as we're looking into your word, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts Lord, that we would take what we're seeing here, Lord, and, and consider it. And, and Lord, and Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would take your scalpel of your word to, to uh, conform our minds, to transform our minds, to renew our minds, and Lord, to uh, have different kinds of lives. Help us to be a people more dedicated to peace, the peace that you give, the peace that you've brought, and Lord, the peace that you've told us to extend the peace of God through Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that uh, for the rest of this morning that you would speak clearly, and God, we rejoice in in who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been doing a a series called uh, A Peacemaking Church, all right? And so we've, we've talked about different aspects, but it has to start, real peace has to start with the peace that God gives. Not the peace is defined by the world, because uh, you have all sorts of different versions of what that's supposed to look like. So we talked about what real peace from God is, and it's the peace with Him. Because without Jesus Christ in our lives, doing what He did, what is our stance before God? We're, we're an enemy of God. We're at war with Him. So we needed God to step in, and that's exactly what He's done through Jesus Christ. He's provided through the cross the peace of God where we're justified, we're declared not guilty, and we're not, no longer at war with God. We're brought into His family. We're called His children. We're, what a blessing, right? So that was the first week. The second week we talked about this peace that God gives, the peace that we can have through Jesus Christ, is also a peace that testifies. I don't have to tell, give you much evidence but the last two years in, our, in the life of our nation has been one of uh, kind of a little bit of turmoil, right? So the, just the way our nation has interacted about all sorts of things, especially the, more recently with the Supreme Court, all these things, our world needs the peace of God, right? So if we show a peace amongst each other, a peace in our own lives in the midst of all the turmoil, that has a huge evangelistic effect. Matter of fact, one of the items of the spiritual armor, it goes on your feet, is called what from Ephesians 6? The peace. It's your feet shod with the gospel of peace. We bring peace. That's part of our armor, the peace of God through Jesus Christ. So peace testifies. That's part two. Part three 
And if you, we have to start moving into practical terms. We've been talking about peace with God. Now we have peace with each other. But in practical terms, to show peace in the body of Christ, because there's going to be conflict, the first aspect that you need to have, that I need to have, is confession. Because if you want to have peace with others, the first thing that you need to do is be able to confess. And that means owning your part in any conflict. I own that what I did was wrong. You don't point at others first. Where do you point first? Matthew 7? Right here, right? So confession is the first part. That was what we looked at part three. Part four, we had Andrew Rogers, and he, he spoke on Psalm 32, where it was called the surprising joy of repentance. So not only in conflict with God and with each other do you have to confess your sin and own it, the next part is you need to repent of it. And repentance means I'm sorry for what I've done, and it's an acknowledgement I need to turn and change, right? So you might, if you own your sin, that's not enough, right? You've got to go to the next step is you've got to repent of your sin and repent of the part that you've played in conflict. So that's what we looked at there. Then in five, we talked about humility, but I boiled it down, the harder pill to swallow of humility. Crawling around, picking up stuff off the ground or helping people bring stuff in from their car. That's, you know, that's humility, that's serving. But what's the hardest part of humility? Remember what I talked about? Hearing criticism? Remember that? That's where most conflict happens. We get defensive. (laughs) My daughter's looking at me. (laughs) But yeah, we get defensive. Criticism, correction, it's hard to hear. But that's, that's where humility gets real, right? So that was that part. Then last or two weeks ago, we talked about how peace, where it happens, it's, where it's in a church that really cares for each other. And we went through Matthew 18, Mimi. We went back into Matthew 18 just to talk about it. But that whole chapter is devoted. Christ lays out, here's what my community is supposed to look like. It's a community that cares for each other that has a deep concern because we are part of God's spiritual health program. I affect Rich's spiritual life. He affects mine because God designed it that way. We have to own each other. A truly caring church is where peace, the peace of God will reign. And of course, love and joy and all those other things. But if you want peace in a body, it's because a church does not come to sit and soak, but because we love each other and care deeply for each other. So that's what we talked about two weeks ago. And this morning, uh, we're going to hop into uh, Luke 15, looking at the, the parable of the prodigal son. But before we get there, I wanted to finish up, because I didn't hit this because we ran out of time. I wanted to finish up real quickly. I know, I'll get there. This one's really quick. But in Matthew 18, when Peter... After we've talked about all these things about the church, and it talks about church discipline, someone's sinning, you've got to pursue them and all this stuff. But then Peter pipes up with this question to Jesus. Oh, so what if somebody, you know, somebody offends me and sins against, against me? And he wanted to prove to Jesus how, how godly he was. Well, should we, should we forgive them seven times? Right? Peter's like, yeah, I'll be really... Because the religious leader said you only had to forgive somebody three times. But he went to seven, Right? And what was Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 and 22? Yeah, seven times 70. Did, did he mean 490 times only? No. 
He was using hyperbole to make a point, right? To, again, to the Jewish hearers, they would have said, what? And his point is that we're supposed to have an extravagant attitude of forgiveness. And he goes on to tell, tell a parable that actually is a warning for the first part is about this benevolent king who, who this, this, one of his servants owes him like 20 years wages. There's no way this guy could pay it back. But because he pled to him, this benevolent king, he forgave this servant. So we just see the amazing forgiveness that he shows. But then this servant goes to another servant who owes him like a month's wages. And he sends that guy to prison until he could pay it back. And so this unforgiving servant who had just been forgiven all this debt, the king finds out and sends him to be punished big time. And that was the warning in that passage. First, we see the, benev- the awesome forgiveness of the king, but it's also the severe consequences if you don't forgive. We are commanded to forgive. We have that in, uh, you guys all the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us or trespass against us. Well, here's what it says right after the Lord's Prayer. I think you have it up here. For if This is Jesus speaking, not Chris Brinzeel. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, uh uh-oh, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. How serious is Jesus about forgiveness? Right? Now, here's the deal. We want to have a church that screams to the world there is a God, and he's real. Like Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John John chapter 17, he says, As you show unity and love to each other, you will show the world that I, Jesus speaking, that I truly came from the Father. We prove that Jesus is the Messiah King, the Savior. Did you know that? That's exactly, he tied that proof to our behavior in the church. That's how critical it is. We have to be forgivers. How much did God forgive you when you became a Christian? Fully, meaning all your past sins, all your present sins, because I know you're sinners. How do I know? Because you're breathing. You hear me say that all the time. You struggle with sin because I struggle with sin because you struggle. Not until we get to heaven will that that fight be over, right? But here's the deal. He also forgives our future sins, all of it. And he's saying, you know what? That's how much I forgave you. So now what do you do? Do the same. Imitate your father. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Put away all these different forms of anger, but instead be kind, tenderhearted, and check this out, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. Oh, (laughs) it's a high standard. So we see in that, I just wanted to finish that off because that really gives us an illustration of the king's forgiveness, but also the severe command, forgive as the father forgives. But today, now we're going to look at another passage. And incidentally, today's passage doesn't have the word forgiveness in it. It doesn't have the word reconciliation nor restoration, but it is all over this story. 
It is, if you don't know the definitions of forgiveness, that's okay, but this shows you what it is in real terms, all right? So we're going to read Luke 15, and I'm going to hop into verse 11. I'm going to refer to the first part later, but here we go, verse 11. There is a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his, meaning the father, the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt hatred towards him. He felt compassion. He felt (laughs) compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this is my son or for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Wow. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and and asked what, what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, pleading with him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, You're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is a powerful, powerful story. And many times we focus on the prodigal son. That's what most people call this parable. But I told out to you that this is really about the expectant, compassionate, forgiving father. He's the star of this story. So I, I want to walk through this real quickly. It's, it's, it speaks to us it's pretty, pretty straightforward, doesn't it? All right. So first of all, I want to talk about the context, the culture, and the characters. Really simply, 
First of all, the context. This is in Luke 15, and verse 1 and 2 tells us why Jesus told this parable. Verse 1 and 2 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all, were all drawing near to hear him, meaning Jesus. They were coming to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So that's the context. Jesus then tells two quick parables. He's, here's what they're saying, these religious leaders who are condemning him. And he tells two quick parables to talk about the Father's attitude towards these sinners that Jesus is receiving and eating with. The attitude, verses 7 and 10, I'll just read them to you real quickly. The two parables end with this. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These religious leaders are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. What do shepherds do with sick sheep or straying sheep? A normal shepherd in real life would do what? Care for them. These religious leaders were hypocritical, self-righteous, and he uses these parables to say, no, God's attitude is to pursue and find the strays. But then he takes it one step further, and that's the parable here. He, t- he says the same basic thing, except he adds an ending that gives this twist to it, where he indicts these religious leaders, all right? So that's, that's kind of the, that's the, that's the context of this passage, and what we need to know real briefly about their culture, their culture was all about two major things. First of all, honor and shame. You do everything to bring honor to your family, to your name, to your reputation. You protect it at all costs. Don't do anything to bring shame or disgrace to the name. We have some of that in our culture, but we, in the Western world, we don't have that as much anymore. That's a huge part of this story. And and what the father does in this story was disgusting to the religious leaders. Shameful. We'll see that. There's another thing, too. It's the clean and unclean. It has to do with righteousness. The Pharisees were all about cleanness, righteousness. If you come near anyone unclean, or like, for instance, a dead body, you, you had to stay a certain amount, a certain amount of you know, distance away from her or else you'd be called ceremonially unclean. Jesus was not only near tax collectors and sinners, he was also doing what? Eating with them. To eat meant to associate with, to identify with. So, oh my goodness, these religious leaders were just going crazy. And the crowd, quite frankly, were watching the religious leaders and Jesus. Religious leaders, it's like they're watching a tennis match going, whoa, what's going on here? Because that's, you understand, that's the culture. They didn't miss this, but we can miss it in American culture, all right? So that's the, that's the culture that's part of this. And then the characters, that's real simple. Obviously, we have Jesus telling the parable, and then we have his antagonists, the religious leaders, all right, the Pharisees, they were the, the teachers of the people. And then you had the scribes who were the, the experts in the actual scriptures, okay, the high and the mighty, all right? And then we have also the crowd who's listening to all this and watching this. But it becomes, it boils down to a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. In the story itself, 
We have a father. He has money. How do I know? He was able to liquidate assets to give a third of his assets because that's what the younger son would get. The older son would get two-thirds and the younger son would get one-third. And he said, Dad, I wish you were dead, basically. So the father was able to liquidate major assets and usually at a huge discount because if you're trying to do it quickly, you're not going to get a good deal. And he gave it to his son and his son was able to take it and take off. So we've got a, we've got a, a, a large landholder, big estate, rich man, well-known in the community most likely. Then we have the younger son, the prodigal. And what does prodigal mean? You guys know what it means? Wasteful, extravagantly wasteful. Okay, and there's an immoral con- uh, part to it too, for sure. Then we have the older son. Okay, he comes in later. All right, he's the one who's going to carry on the family name. He's going to get most of the estate when, when his father dies. He's also, check this out, because it's an honor-shame culture, he's supposed to protect the reputation of the father. Okay, so the story, let's start walking through it. Okay, so that's the, that's the characters of the story. Let's start looking at the first part, the prodigal son. Okay, and he said, Jesus telling the story, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. I hate you. That's essentially what he's saying here. Okay? And give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he, he, meaning the father, divided his property between them. You're a Pharisee. What are you thinking when you hear this parable right then and there? What do you think? Given the culture, given what they would expect. How shameful! What? This, this kid, who does he think he is? How disgraceful. And then when it, it says, and the dad divided his property between them, what are they thinking now? That man's an idiot. How shameful. This man has no honor. You understand, when he's saying this, it's, we think that the, the punchline comes at the very end, but as he's saying it, there's reactions Because remember, he's telling it to the crowd, but specifically the religious leaders, because they were grumbling against him for who he was hanging out with. So they're hearing this, and they're like, what? Are you kidding me? Disgraceful. They were shocked. These religious leaders were shocked at the actions of the father. This is not an honorable way for this kind of man to to carry himself to deal with this kind of son. You know what could have happened? The villagers nearby, they could have beaten the son up for what he did. Some may have even wanted to stone him for how he treated his father. Because what was the son doing? He was disobeying one of the commandments. Honor your father and mother. This was one of the most disgraceful things you could do. This is This son is a Jewish son of a wealthy man, and here he's doing this. It's like the, he's the worst of the worst. That's how rebellious he was. But here it goes on to say, not many days later after he got his money, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So if he's Jewish, what does this mean? He's leaving Israel. He's going to Gentile lands. Oh, wow. It's, so he's not just disowning his family. He's disowning his God, in essence, because that's Israel. That was the land that they were promised. You're supposed to stay there, a faithful Jew. And there he squandered his property in reckless, that word is the word prodigal, reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, man, was he just flowing the money out, right? A severe famine arose in that country. So he hurt himself by his own decisions, but then their famine arose. <laughs> if you're saving your money, when a famine comes, you're kind of, you, that's, that kind of helps you get through that, right? But he just spent it all. So now here comes a, a natural consequence that happens in life, a trial, right? So it's, it's making things get worse for him. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, meaning he hired himself out to a Gentile. Okay, remember, the hearers are going, the religious leaders are going, oh, more disgrace. But you know what? He deserves it. He deserves it. Look at this guy. He deserves what he's going to get. I'm glad he's in need. And he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and now it gets really bad, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. What do we know about pigs in Jewish, according to Jewish law? Unclean, un, the most unclean of animals. So not only feeding them now, what else is he doing? He's competing with them for their own food. And he realizes, what does it say? But when he came to himself, right? Verse 17, he said, oh my goodness, I'm an idiot. I'm a moron. I am a fool. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? By the way, in Jewish, for a large landholder, he would have different kinds of servants. He would have household servants, trusted servants that are basically part of the family, but then he would also hire day laborers to work the fields. They weren't part of the family. They worked day, day by day. They didn't get paid much. But what does he notice about his father? Hmm? He was fair. He was generous. Even the, the lowest of the workers get more than enough to feed themselves. Oh, his view of his dad has changed, hasn't it? Instead of, I hate you, dad, oh my goodness, what have I done? He's generous. He's caring. He came to himself. There's a change and he's also, what is he doing as far as confession? What is, he doing with, what is he doing with his own part in this? I sinned against God and I sinned against dad. I am the one who's at fault here. I'm the one. He's not pointing any fingers. He's going right here. That's good. It's, there's humility here now. There's not hatred. There's humility. There's a desire to change. Verse 18, I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Is he entitled anymore? No. I, I know what I've done. It's fair. And by the way, when a, when a Jewish family would have a son that would go to these extremes and take off like this, oftentimes they would hold a funeral service. That's why when he says later, my son was dead and now he's alive. He had disowned, he disowned his family so much in his God and left that they basically have some kind of a funeral service. Wow. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that humility? Absolutely. I am no longer worthy to be called. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I don't, I don't, you don't have to bring me back into the family, but even if it's just a day laborer, please. But again, what are the religious leaders thinking about this? What do you think they're thinking? He got what he deserved. Hey, Dad, do not accept him back. What a scumball. 
Please, I, I'm, I'm sorry to yell, but you guys have to understand the depth of the hatred and the hypocrisy by so the supposed shepherds of Israel. And that's what Jesus is confronting here. And that's so they're, they're walking with this story and they're, they're not tracking with Jesus. They can't stand the father. How dishonorable this father is. The, the prodigal son, well, yeah, he's prodigal, but he's getting what he deserves. All right? So that's what, how they're reacting to it. But don't miss, too, when we're watching the prodigal son, the change in him, the confession, the repentance, the humility, the pleading for forgiveness, the lack of entitlement. Wow. Amazing. So then we see the forgiving father. He, he's the star here. In verses 20 through 24, and even at the last two verses of 31 and 32. And he arose, the prodigal son, came to his, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Okay. Big landholder estate. Okay. The father is the one who sees the son. What does that mean? Well, it means it's, it's that, that he it gives a picture that he was the expectant one looking and waiting for his son to return. That's the picture. That's why many people call him the expectant father. The one who wants him to come back. Again, contrary to what the Pharisees believed God to be. Wow. So he felt what? Compassion. Now, the word for that, mercy. How many of you want God's mercy? I do. One is grace, one is mercy. Go hand in hand, man. I need it. Oh, here we have it. We have it pictured right in front of us. And then what did he do? Crossed his arms and waited like this? No. It says he ran. Oh, by the way, a Jewish, an honorable Jewish man, especially one of his stature, never did that. You read in the writings of the Pharisees and the the rabbis back then, that's not what an honorable, well-respected man did. That's shameful. He ran to his son. Oh, my goodness, you guys. Think about that. When you sin and you feel disgusting, how could God love me? Please read this passage. Amazing. God's compassionate heart for his children, right? All right, I'm running to application, but I want us to see that. That's just amazing. He ran and embraced him, this smelly guy who'd been working in a Gentile land with pigs. He was the lowest of the low, and he embraced his son and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What's left out? He didn't even get to say the rest. What was the rest that he was going to say? He rehearsed it. You, please treat me as one of your hired servants. The father cuts him off. What does he do? Look what he does. But the father, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Who got the best robe? The honored son. And he's honoring him now. And put it on him. Did, hey, do, hey, son, you need to wash up first. Then we'll take care of Then we'll really have fun. No. Get the best room. Put them on him now. Wow. Okay. Okay, I'm going to jump to application again. But check this out. When you become a Christian, are you perfectly righteous? Now, we are because of something God does for us. He clothes us in Christ's righteousness. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
We get the wedding garments. Remember the parable of the wedding where the king found a guy in there who didn't have the wedding garments? He wasn't the one that the king provides. You guys understand, this is a picture. He puts his robe on us. What's the deal with the ring? The ring was the sign of authority, an inheritor who acted in, in, the, in the stead of the father. Look at what he's doing. And not, it doesn't just stop there. What else does he say? Let's party. The fattened calf means there's going to be a lot of people coming. He's a large land-holding estate. You know, he also probably invited who? The villagers. This is a big party. This is a public thing. What would the villagers have thought before about the son, about the father, about this whole situation? Oh, well, he's, the son's dead. Well, he better not show himself, his face around here. We'll take care of him. Like, whew, gosh, what was the dad thinking letting this happen? Because understand, remember, think like a Jew of what, how they're hearing this story and what they would have done. And yet, instead of all that, what does the dad do? Runs to him, embraces him, kisses him. The same son that had... And by the way, when the son did this and left with a third of his money, that was a public embarrassment to the dad. Because word gets out. Why is he selling all this stuff off? Why, why was the son leaving with all that money? Oh my goodness, how disgraceful. And yet now they see a party. It's a public party. How, how great is the father's love? Pretty amazing, isn't it? Do you want that kind of forgiveness? Right? I do. Do you want that kind of reconciliation coming back to the father? Do you want that? Do you want that kind of restoration where God rejoices when you repent? That's the point here. So when you see somebody else struggling in sin, what's your attitude? Are you a Pharisee or are you like this father, hoping they return and wanting to embrace them and bring them back in? Let's do that, right? Okay, I'm jumping right to the application here for our church. A peacemaking church lives like this father. But it's not done yet. Let's keep going through here. It's an amazing story. The father, wow. He cuts him off. He doesn't let him say, I'm not, you know, I want to treat me like a servant. He, he brings him the best robe, puts it on him, puts a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. He's, he's now son again. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That's the same point of the first two parables in chapter 15. There's the angels and God rejoice over the repentance of a sinner. How many of you have repented of your sin? What does God do? Rejoices. Not, oh, it's about time. I mean, you know what? You guys have to, you, you know what? You need, you need to do some stuff before I'll even talk to you again. He doesn't do that to us. Do you want that kind of God? I do. But I'm not making up this kind of God. This is, the, this is what Jesus says. God himself. God in the flesh. Amazing. What forgiveness, what willingness to see reconciliation and restoration. No demanding of groveling or restitution or humiliation. No desire for himself, the father, to save face publicly, to gain back the honor that he lost in front of the villagers. He could care less. My son was died or was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now let's party. Isn't that cool? Don't miss this. It's not about the prodigal son. This is about the father. 
So I want to I want to stop real quickly here about something about forgiveness, okay? Because when we start throwing out words of forgiveness, I want you to know that you when you forgive somebody, because we want to apply that here, right? In our relationships, there's four things you need to know about forgiveness that God requires of you. All right. I will not dwell on this incident. When you forgive somebody, you are making the commitment, I will not dwell on this incident where I'm granting forgiveness that they did to me. It's the first one. Second one, okay? I will not bring this incident up and use it against you in the future. How many of you do that? You remember it and you throw it back out. Everyone raise your hands, you've done it. (laughs) You're as bad as me, right? We can get better at this, but that's what we have to remember. We're making commitments here. The second, third thing, I will not talk to others about this incident. I'm not going to bring others in to get on my side, right? How many of you have done that? But I just need someone to talk to. No, when you give forgiveness, you need to do that. Grant forgiveness. Four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us nor hinder our relationship. Whoa, that's a tough one, isn't it? These are the four things that when we forgive somebody... This is what we're committing to. When God forgives us, according to Psalms, it says that He puts our sins away from Him as far as the east is from the west, eternity. Now, here's the deal. There's two words, and I've skipped over this, I think, in my notes, but there's two words for forgiveness in the New Testament. One is afiemi, the other one is charizomai. Afiemi, it's to put away something that's been done to you, to put out of your thinking, to push away, all right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those, those who have sinned against or trespassed. You push away what they've done. The other word is charizomai. If you know anything about Greek or Latin, you hear the word charis in there. What is the word charis? Grace. It's the, it's the participle of grace. It says you grace them in forgiveness. There's two words. That's from Ephesians 4. It means that you go towards them with grace. So when you forgive somebody, you absorb the hit, because when they sin against you, they're doing something wrong, in some case very evil, but in forgiveness, you absorb the hit. Oh, who, who did that for us? Oh, Jesus, that's right. So when we do that, we're imitating him, and we move towards them in grace and granting them grace. To give freely is what that means. Those are the two words in Greek. Isn't it a great picture? One, to push what they did away and to come towards them in grace. Isn't that cool? What did the father do? He absorbed the hit. He was publicly humiliated, but did he care? Absolutely not. Jesus himself says, why did I endure all this? I despise the shame, Hebrews chapter 12, or Hebrews 11. But for the joy set before me, he endured the cross. <sighs> Aren't you glad he does that for us? But we're, we're commanded to do the same. So think back all the times I've teased you too much, I mean, all the times you've been sinned against. How have you done in granting forgiveness? Yeah, I don't need to see hands or anything. I know you failed. I fail too. But this is where we can see God grow us. Amen? Amen. So, doesn't end here, and we need to, we need to finish up with the older brother's uh, reaction. So now we're going to look at the hypocritical and hating son. I kind of gave it away, didn't I? Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. There was a party going on, and he's like, what is going on? I've been working all day. And he called one of the servants and asked, what are these things? What's going on here? Okay, he's, he's been faithfully working. When I use that word faithfully, I mean it in a different kind of way. And, and he wouldn't even go inside. He's, what's going on here? 
So he finds out from a servant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. There's a welcome party, a rejoicing party going on. Not what the older son expected, was it? And here's the deal. But he was angry and refused to go in. What does the father do? I don't care about that. We're partying. Well, let him, let him stew in his sauces over there. He'll get over it. Is that what he does? What does the father do? Even here, the father comes to plead with him. And his father came out and entreated the older son. Entreated him. Come in. You're, you're, come on. But here's the deal. What we can't miss first before I keep going on is the son's physical demonstration, because it was in front of at least one servant, if not more, was, Dad, I hate you. As much as the son, the younger son said, I want your money, Dad, I wish you were dead, what he was doing was also publicly disgraceful. He's shaming the father, but he doesn't just stop here. You'll see some more in a second. But he answered his father, look, disgraceful what he just did there. Look, in the Hebrew, in the, the way that they, this would come out in the, in the Greek here in, in that culture, oh my goodness, how dare you say that to your father? Ooh. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Ooh. So why did he serve his dad? Was it out of love or out of duty? It's more of duty, selfishness. But when this son of yours came, this son of yours, he's distancing himself from his dad. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Yeah, the younger son really was immoral. Okay, no hiding that, right? But instead of, of disowning him and sending him away, you killed the fattened calf for him. Oh, my goodness. Again, disgraceful all the way through this older son. This was, again, the, the religious leaders wouldn't have missed this. They would understand the feelings of the older son, but they also recognized how disgraceful, how shameful the older son was now treating the dad. They wouldn't have missed this. We're like, well, I get it. I feel, I feel the same way. But you understand, who is Jesus attacking? He's attacking their hearts. The shepherds of Israel are supposed to be more like God than acting naturally. They're supposed to be shepherding people. In word and action, he showed hatred for the Father. They were hypocritical. He was hypocritical. I'm not serving because I love Dad. I'm serving because I want to get something in the end. And you didn't give me my party. He was hard-hearted. Hard-hearted. And then here we see the dad, the star. And he said to him, the father said to the son, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. He doesn't attack him. He pleads with him. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, this, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Again, he, he pleads with him. He reasons with him. He's pursuing him. He's pleading. He's showing compassion. He's patiently reaching out to him. He's rejoicing in the return of his repentant son. And he's asking the older son to do the same. What forgiveness and compassion and grace and mercy. And here's the deal. Oh, may we learn and be like the father. Amen. 
So uh, you guys always, first of all, here's a, here's a really easy thing to do in Scripture. Whenever you're reading Scripture and there's someone who's doing something evil or dumb, the, a really good hermeneutical or way to read this is to put yourself and say, that's me. Because usually that's what Jesus is bringing something. He's confronting somebody. You know what? We have all acted like, how many of you have acted like a Pharisee before towards others? Self-righteous, you know, wanting to make them pay. I have. Oof. How many of you have been like the prodigal? Oh, boy. Right? But here, the star of the story is the dad. Don't miss that. Have you been the prodigal and, and have you confessed, repented, returned, and humbly seeking reconciliation and restoration? And have you seen this kind of God or do you still think he's waiting to beat you up and punish you because you're too bad? If you're beating yourself up in, in about something that you've done, you don't understand how much God forgave you. You don't understand how much Jesus paid for all your sins. Isn't that amazing? We're not bigger than God, and God died for you. Jesus on the cross died for your sins. Wow. Have you been the older, hating, legalistic, prideful, unforgiving son? Yeah, me too. So here's the deal. What do we need to repent of and what do we need to do, right? And again, I can't, this is not for you to answer now, but I consider that, pray about it. And may we be a church that's like the Father, right? The world needs to see real forgiveness, real reconciliation, real peace, right? Guys, the world is watching. They're looking everywhere for answers. Now, they don't want to turn to the church, but you know what? We need to show them. They need to see the peace we have. They need to see the hope we have. And if they see hope, you know what they're going to do? Many times they'll ask. They'll want to know why. Amen? All right, let's pray. And, and actually, at this point, we're going to do communion. So Rich is going to come up and lead us. But I'll, I'll go ahead and pray real quick to end this part. God, thank you. Thank you for this parable, this wonderful, wonderful, powerful, overwhelming parable where we see you, Father, and your love for us, your compassion, your mercy, your kindness, your grace. And Lord, I pray that, uh, one, that we would embrace that and just see that and rejoice in it. But Lord, I also, too, that we would be challenged to exhibit the same. I know I can be so quick to judge, so quick to hold a grudge, so quick to, to remember and get angry. Lord, uh, I just pray that you would work a, a, do your work in me, Holy Spirit, and in each one of us here, Lord, uh, that we would grow and change for your glory and our good. Amen.